This is Democracy, a podcast that explores the interracial, intergenerational, and intersectional unheard voices living in the world's most influential democracy. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. Uh, today, we're going to discuss Turkey, uh, Turkey's evolution uh, as a democracy, as an American ally, and the uh, current controversies surrounding Turkey's relationship uh, with the United States and the countries around it. Uh, we're fortunate to have with us uh, one of the foremost experts on Turkey that I know and a good friend, uh, David Judson. Uh, welcome, David. Thank you. Good to be here. David David has uh, spent many years of his life uh, in Turkey. He, he really has a sort of uh, binational existence between the United States and Turkey. Uh, He went there as early as high school, later was a college student there, and most interestingly spent uh, much of his career as a newspaper reporter and editor in Turkey. He was the managing editor of the Dogon Media Group's uh, Turkish language business daily called Referans. And in 2006, he became the editor-in-chief of uh, the famous Hurriyet Daily News, which is, I think, the main English language newspaper uh, in, in Turkey. He left Turkey in 2013, moved to Austin, uh, where he was editor-in-chief of Stratfor Geopolitical Forecasting, an organization that became actually quite famous for its work on this particular region. Um, And uh, he also uh, has been involved with uh, Global Foresight in San Francisco and is now founding, in fact, a new... uh, innovative media uh, group called Urbanitas, which has a a website that will soon be available actually in the next day or so uh, for people to learn about many more of these issues. So, David, you're a busy man. I'll tell you. Yeah, culturally confused and busy. Yes, right. <laughs> well, we're going to focus on Turkey today, speaking right. of cultural confusion. And we're going to begin, of course, with a scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. Uh, what is your poem titled today, Zachary? Images of Turkey. Images of Turkey. Okay, let's hear it. Turkey. You are eating donor kebabs in an Oxford side alley ten years ago. You are the family friends from bus trips across the entire state of Wisconsin, names that are hard to pronounce to our American tongues. You are some mythical interpretation of Hercules at the Dardanelles, Xerxes and his bridge. You are the lost Grecians of Ilium, the namesake of Billy Pilgrim's urban America. You are built upon the bones of myth, upon the ruins of the walls of Poseidon. You are that time I stayed up late in the dark listening to the news of a military coup on a bridge from 5,000 miles away. Turkey, butt of so many poultry jokes, too many gobble-gobbles, learning about your siege of Cyprus from the travel anchor on the DVD. Turkey, my parents trekked across you in their half-beat rental car for their honeymoon, and my feet still float across the rug they bought in the morning. And now it is stained with hot chocolate and dust. Bedeviler of Bosnia, catalyst of Viennese triumph and pastries, possessor of Palestine, Turkey, Ottoman partaker in World War, collapsed empire, dabbling in democracy, NATO member, taking in refugees from Syria, and Baghdadi was just killed along your border. And it is kind of surreal that you are in between it all, neither Europe nor Asia, not completely Middle Eastern, split, O lost soul of Hati, between continents loosely defined split along the soul of so many writers between freedom and tyranny, mixing and mixing like the way the wheels spin on Hercule Poirot's train headed west from Istanbul. Turkey, there are images of green conflict zones on live maps of Syrian dissolution that trace back to you, and there are pictures of you languishing under a sweet full moon in a rooftop restaurant on my mother's dresser. There's a lot in that poem, Zachary. 
I think we could wrap right there. I think you captured the whole story. Yeah. I'm a big fan of your poetry, but you have um, won me over all the more so. So uh, what, what, how does it all come together, Zachary? What's in well, it? this poem was really about uh, sort of the complexities of the issue at hand and how Turkey really straddles uh, so many different continents and so many periods of history, uh, going back even to Greek mythology and, and before that period. And what it's kind of what makes the conflicts in the Middle East and particularly in Turkey so, so interesting, but also so complicated. Hmm. Hmm. So, so that's a really great point to start on, David. Uh, h- how do we how do we think about Turkey's evolution in the last century or so? Yeah, I mean, I I I, I think Zach kind of got it there. I think the simplest way, clearest way to to sort of start thinking properly about Turkey, is to think about it as throughout the twentieth century, as kind of a uh, a pivoting back and forth between the modernizing, secularizing forces at the sort of center yes. um, and, you know, and a pious, more conservative um, hinterland at the periphery. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the, the original revolution foundation of the, of the Republic in 1923 was really the center moving out towards that periphery to kind of orient to the West. And this is the republic that grew out of what had been the Ottoman yeah, Empire. Ottoman Empire, exactly. Um, the 1950, the first true multi-party election, Turkey pivots back towards it, again towards its hinterland, a more conservative government, really almost a, uh, a forerunner of today's uh, Justice and Development Party, or AKP. 1960, first military coup, Turkey's snapped back the opposite direction. Um, Democracies restored, 1960s politics um, move again back towards um, those those conservative re- reflexes reemerge again. There's a corrective, the um, time of tutelage from the military, going to get it right this time. Right. Uh, that didn't quite work. 1970s was a time of great right-left uh, conflict. 1980, another coup. Then we have um, after the after that coup, we have the rise of uh, or the 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 emergence of of uh, uh, Ozal, mm-hmm. um, the uh, uh, who was a, a modernizing president in many many ways, prime minister and president. Um, but he also kind of took um, you know, uh, Turkey back to its to its to its more conservative pious right. roots. Right. Um, the, he dies, his uh, successors take over. In 1996, there's what they call the postmodern coup. The, um, the partner in, in the government at the time, Islamist party, um, has to um, resign in retreat. The, again, forces of secularism, the centralizing forces take over, um, assert themselves. 2002, we have the um, election of the AKP and and, and and that's how we get the current president and that's how we get the current president exactly yeah. and and as someone David who uh, lived in both the United States and in Turkey and in fact has worked as a journalist in both places it's quite unique actually your background what would you identify as some of the differences in lived democracy between the US and Turkey because Turkey is in some ways a democracy right yeah it's a very muscular democracy and it's a um, it's a it's a competitive, pluralistic place. Uh, the, I mean, democracy is about a lot more than elections. Right. And the, um, and 
the ability for various factions and forces to express themselves are many. Mm -hmm. um, I used to argue that, I mean, even in, in the 2000s when I was a journalist in Turkey, and Turkey had a lot of problems with the freedom of press then. There were sanctions on journalism. But sanctions are not the only way to measure freedom of the press. Right. Uh, the, in those days, there were two Marxist dailies. There were three Islamist dailies wow. competing with one another. Yes. There were a half a dozen m mainstream dailies. There were two conservative nationalist dailies. Um, it was a very, very vibrant ecosystem. There were three Kurdish language dailies at that time. Really? Yes. Wow. The, uh, um, now, you know, was everything uh, a walk in the park? No, it was not. But of course, um, you know, since particularly since the coup before, but 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 particularly since the the coup in 2016, um, that dynamism, that right. diversity within the within the media has 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 been all but rubbed out, um, and that's part of the sort of retreat. Uh, from democratic principles and, that kind of define country, the and, country. And point. in addition to the press, um, it does seem to me the role of the military is an important part of this story too. And Absolutely. paradoxically, in some ways, the military until recently was a protector of certain secular elements in society, right? Yeah. No, I think that that's the, 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 the military really saw its role as protecting Ataturk's legacy, which was making Turkey, um, by hook or by crook, a Western democracy. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was, but it was a, it was a democracy that was imposed right. rather than one that sort of organically grew up. Um, and that's been kind of the, the problem. Um, and that's the kind of the, this, the central tension that I think um, defines the modern era in Turkey. And we're at the, just yesterday was the 96th anniversary of the uh, of the founding of the republic, right, yeah. right, interesting, right. Yeah. Just on the end of World War One, the creation yeah. of this this yeah. new state. Um, should we see the retreat of the military as the result of uh, Islamic forces primarily? Because that seems to be one of the big shifts since. Yeah, the last I mean, it's a little complicated, so. but basically, the Reader's Digest condensed version would be: I mean, the the Islamist group that is alleged by the government to be behind the coup was originally, when it came to power his staunchest ally, um, the Gulen movement. The Gulen movement really had had connections within the military. It had um, a lot of connections. It was a, um, And they were very instrumental in what is now regarded as, as manufactured evidence for the show trials in the late 2000s that really emasculated and defanged the military. Uh, there, the, the sledgehammer and... Uh, and I can't remember the name of the other one now, but but two two famous trials um, that I mean at one point you know a third of the officer corps was in prison. Wow. The uh, so the you know I mean sure did the um, did the military need to maybe take a step back or be um, uh, restrained in some way for sure, but the the defanging of it was uh, was pretty deep and. Pretty profound. And how has President Erdogan been able to get away with this? I mean, because as you point out, I mean, there's a long history of the military right. being a protector. And, and, and also there were traditions that had developed over the course, traditions of the free press and other activities. Well, there's a couple of things I would note. Um, one, good fortune. Um, one, he had these allies in this group that, that, that had um, infiltrated the institutions to some degree. 
the uh, I think that one thing that probably changed was the complexion of the military changed. Okay. That um, the Ataturk's military, the Kamalist military, was really um, large. The officer corps were largely the descendants of Balkan immigrants. Hmm. Um, the um, very very temperamentally oriented toward Europe. Um, the as the economy improved, mm-hmm. and the uh, people of that demographic could aspire to become college professors or poets. Right. The appeal of military <laughs> academies, <laughs> yeah, right. The, the appeal of the military academy was treated, and you started having more conservative recruits coming up through the system. Right. Um, so the, the the military itself became more conservative over time, and I think that's a big part of the story. Is, is it fair then to put uh, Erdogan, President Erdogan, in the category of populist? Yeah, I think he's. Um, that's a that's a really good adjective. Okay. Yeah, um, and the um, you know his particularly when he first came to power, um, the economic reforms, the healthcare reforms, the housing reforms, uh, he was a very popular guy, and uh, the he's now been uh, in in office either as prime minister or president um, longer than any other leader of Turkey, including including Ataturk. Wow. I hadn't realized that. Zachary? Yeah. Um, how has Turkey's role, particularly as a important U.S. ally during the Cold War, and largely its uh, almost military relationship with the United States, how has that influenced its, uh, its relationship with the United States and President Trump today? Well, the... Um, hmm, interesting question, how we, how we get it to Trump. But so the... I mean, there's a... You know, there's a long kind of band of brothers kind of relationship between the two militaries, going all the way back to the Korean War. Tur- Turkey, of course, um, um, sent a lot of troops to to the, the Korean War. Um, there's you know lots of uh, the, every, everybody in the in the Turkish officer corps pretty much at one time or another has trained in the United States. Um, so there's. Um, there, there are some deep bonds there. The, and Turkey was a member of NATO. Is a member and of Turkey NATO. Turkey is a member of NATO. Right, right. But the, you know, particularly, I mean, since the coup, that kind of fractured the military in a lot of ways, um, and since Erdogan has been um, kind of refocusing back towards the Ottoman hinterland, where his where his heart is in many ways, the um, Turkey's become kind of a problematic member of NATO. Buying anti-missile defense system from Russia, uh, the um, not agreeing to the terms to participate in the F-35 program the way the United States wanted, um, and you know, fast forward, we see um, you know the events of the last few weeks um, that have really um, kind of pulled the uh, uh, the. I mean, you have the the. The, the militaries of the two countries going in different directions. The, um, I mean, the, I think the military really supports the decision to invade um, Syria. Mm. Um, the U.S. military certainly does not. Right, of course um, not. And, um, and 
you know, depending on what time of day and which day of the week, um, it's hard to say. But I think at the moment, um, Erdogan and Trump are kind of aligned, but I'm not sure about so, that. So how then should we should we understand uh, the, the recent events uh, where the United States has pulled out of or largely pulled out of, Sy- of Syria and the Turks have, have moved in in a much more forceful, aggressive military way and have taken more military action against the Kurds? How should we understand that? Is that really about Erdogan and Trump or is it about a broader dynamic connected to these other issues? Sure. So the so I mean I mean Erdogan well let me let me back up a bit. I mean the I mean everybody knows that the United States, one way or another, the United States wants to 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 if not get out of the Middle East, certainly wants to lower its profile right. dramatically. I mean it's really been a forty year war, right? The um, and the so the vacuum that's emerging will be filled by one of three powers. Saudi Arabia, Iran, or Turkey. Turkey wants that role. Um, Erdogan, not too long ago, um, until the Arab Spring or even into the Arab Spring, was a very, very popular figure um, throughout the Middle East. Um, That now um, has changed. Uh, His his relationship with Saudi Arabia is in tatters. The relationship with the Emirates is in tatters. Uh, His one ally really is Egypt and also Qatar, Mm. where they have a military base now. But Turkey's been in in an expansive mood, I think it's safe to say. Um, The the Kurdish issue is a complex one. Um, The YPG, as it's called, you know, on the border that was the, the American ally until days ago, um, is an offshoot of the PKK, the terrorist organization in Turkey that's you know, been a, um, a long-term uh, problem for Turkey. And just um, to clarify, the Kurds uh, are an ethnic group that claim uh, a right to nationhood of their own, correct? Right. The, um, I mean, the, you know, of all the people that have been, you know, Dealt a bad hand in the in the Middle East um, in the last century, um, the Kurds would be you know high on the list. Yes. they've uh, the uh, now you know it's it's also important not to kind of reduce it to a binary um, sort of uh, derivative of the U.S. civil rights situation. With you know, I mean the I mean Turkey is a is a very complex. There are more than thirty three languages spoken in Turkey. There are more more descendants of Bosnians living in Turkey than living in Bosnia. Hmm. There are more hmm. descendants of Albanians living in Turkey than in Albania. There, the, um, the, the Laz, or it's a Muslim, uh, Muslim group of Georgians, ethnic Georgians, and speak, speak a distinct language and dialect. Uh, the Kurds themselves speak three mutually unintelligible um, dialects or languages. So the... Um, and so, I mean, the, 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 while there's a, um, a very discernible heterogeneous Kurdish identity in many ways, there's not the analogous Turkish identity. I see. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a composite identity, kind of like French identity after the French revolution. Like, well, we're all going to be French now. And there probably was a minority of people speaking French. It's a multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-religious society. Sure. Right? It was it's the collapsed star of empire as, as Zach kind of pointed out at the beginning of the of the of the program here. Um, so the but the just as the Basque and the Catalonians have never really sought to 
um, be integrated uh, very effectively into the Iberian or um, um, larger Iberian identities or French identities. The, the Kurds didn't want to go along with the program to become Turks along with the, the, the Pomaks and the Laz and the, um, and the Al- Albanians, etc. Um, and it's been a long struggle. Uh, the now through the I mean, I mean they started getting cultural rights in the 1990s I mean when I first went to Turkey the official line was that Kurds didn't exist hmm. um, they were mountain Turks and spoke a kind of a bastardized uh, dialect of Turkish that because of their isolation it was just nonsense um, in the early 1990s the language rights were gradually given the and then originally Erdogan so there's really three periods so Ocalan the uh, the leader of the PKK was captured in the late 1990s with the help of the CIA, and he, in prison, demanded a ceasefire, which lasted till 2004. Um, that fell apart in 2004. There was a uh, a time of conflict and assault. And some horrible things happened and terrorist actions. Um, the up until 2009, um, that's when Erdogan began the so-called Kurdish opening, um, and. Kurdish television was begun. Kurdish uh, education was allowed in universities. Um, mm. There were a lot of important things happened. And minis- municipalities in the eastern region actually began producing, became not bilingual but trilingual, producing wow. all the languages for the municipalities in both Turkish, Kurdish, and wow. uh, Syriac, wow. because there's a Syriac uh, sure. minority in that in that region of. And uh, this is also the moment when the the Kurds become a close American ally. Right in Iraq and elsewhere. Right, yes. um, and in fact, the the this is one thing that I think hasn't been maybe effectively explored in the media in this in the in the context of this of the of the events of the last few weeks, is that until 2015, when the Kurdish opening was was going on, um, Turkey was maintaining pretty good relationships with the Kurds in the Syrian side. Right. Uh, Salih Muslim, the leader who's now the spokesman, um, was frequently in Ankara. Um, there was talk of opening a representative office for the group, um, and uh, and that was fine until 2015 when they had a general election and the Kurdish, the the sort of the the the, the, the Sinn Fein, if you will, um, political Kurdish political party, got 15 percent of the right. vote. It became a challenge to Erdogan. Became a challenge to Erdogan and and drew a lot of votes from non Kurds. Right. The leader who's now in prison, two years, no charges. Um, the um, uh, yeah, that's another story. We don't. We can do that the next podcast. But the um, <laughs> but it was after 2015 that then they decided to rerun the election. And that's when the, the the Kurdish opening came to an end. The tensions flared, and in the and the nationalism uh, that uh, that that rose up um, after the conflict resumed is really what helped the AKP to to win those nationalist votes back that he'd lost because of the Kurdish conflict, and 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 kind of bolstered his majority. So, in, so in is, it fair, so. Is, is it fair to say that at least in part what President Erdogan is doing is attacking the Kurds to build his popularity at home? Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely and he's and it's and it's very effective. The um I think the 
Uh, I mean, the, he's in trouble. You know, the economy is in bad shape. Right. The, he lost uh, the Istanbul, lost four major municipalities in the last local elections. And So why does this tactic work? I mean, everything you've said uh, indicates, you know, Turks have a, a long tradition of actually working with Kurds and managing these issues. Why all of a sudden is this so popular? Well, I think that the... Um, I mean, I mean, everybody's tired. They're tired of taking care of four and a half million Syrian refugees. Um, they're tired of the attacks, you know, by the by the PKK, the tensions that result from that. Um, and this this move into Syria um, is seen both as a way of clamping down on the PKK. Um, they, uh, the the PKK is regarded the, the the Kurdish movement on both sides is is really regarded as using from from their perspective i mean the the story here the narrative here is that they were america's allies against isis the turkish narrative that's been repeated over and over and over and again in a very heavily government controlled press is that they've been using isis as a tool to camouflage their national aspirations. That the Kurds have been secretly collaborating with ISIS. No, not that they're secretly collaborating, but that they use the the threat of, of, of ISIS as a tool to leverage um, their way to the national aspirations, maybe even statehood um, that, 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 they, that they would like. And, um, and of course, I, I mean, while I, I have deep skepticism about how realistic it is to relocate um, four and a half million Syrians into Syrian Arabs into a previously Kurdish um, uh, set of neighborhoods that didn't come from there in the first place. Right. Um, that resonates very well in in a, in a country. I mean, imagine. I mean, that if if the United States had been taking care of sixteen million um, refugees for five years with very right. little help from uh, from other places, and they've done a very good job. The camps. I mean, particularly if you compare them to the way. We've been treating some right. of the uh, Mexican migrants and the separation of families, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. and you know, no, you know, inadequate toilet facilities and no toilet paper and no toothpaste, et cetera, et cetera. The the um, the, 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 the the Turkish Red Crescent Society has done a, just a remarkable job of taking care of the refugees. Yeah, and four and a half million refugees is a lot of. It's people. a lot of people. Yeah. So so David, as you know, we always like to to close our discussion not simply unpacking the problem as you've done so brilliantly yeah. here, but also thinking about positive directions forward. How, how does this broader historical view that you've provided us? open options, um, if not necessarily overnight options, but long-term options for thinking about U.S. policy, for thinking about regional policy? Well, I mean, I think that, um, I mean, one way or the other, um, Turkey and the United States um, have got to get along. Um, the imperatives for both sides um, to find a modus vivendi um, are powerful. I mean, the um, the United States is not going to um, look to an alliance with Iran as its new regional um, hegemonic partner. Um, the Saudi Arabia looks um, like kind of a less than perfect option. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so, so I, I mean, so I, I think the, 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 the long-term forces are aligned um, in support of a continued alliance. But, uh, but it's, it's really going to be constrained and it's really going to be difficult. And the, you know, while I have some sympathy with um, the issue, the um, House of Representatives yesterday, um, you know, declaring 
the Armenian genocide, passing the Armenian genocide resolution, just pours gasoline on the fires of nationalism. See, and some would argue, as our, our prior guest, Samantha Power, yeah, right, has right. argued that this is actually a step forward, that acknowledging and holding Turkey to account for the the, the genocide of, you know, perhaps a million and a half Armenians, that, right. that that's, that's a step forward. You don't see it that way. Well, I think that um, coming to terms with the history of the genocide will ultimately be a big step forward. Where I would disagree with Dr. Powers, I think, is that, you know, is the history of the, of the genocide is, I mean, I mean, all genocides are not alike. Um, and the, 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 the way the resolution passed it, it basically, you know, gives parity um, to the Armenian genocide with um, the Holocaust. And the circumstances, the historical circumstances are very different. And the, I think probably the, the most important book I think written on this is by Taner Akcham, who is himself a Turkish scholar. I think he's, 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 he's lectured here at, at University I think he of Texas. Is, yes. yeah. Yeah. Um, and he's a Turk and he uses the word genocide and he's not very popular in Turkey because of that. And he's very popular in Armenia because of that. But if either side actually read the book. Right. Um, and the complicity of the French and the complicity of the Germans and sure, the complicity sure. of the Russians. So, so I mean, the, the ultimate reconciliation has to take in um, a lot more actors than just the Turks. But when, the way, it, the, the sort of crude way this comes down, did they do it, did they not? Was it a genocide, was it not? I think um, sort of puts um, the whole historical burden on the shoulders of Turkey um, in a way that doesn't take us toward a deeper understanding of what happened, um, but rather kind of locks us into position and aggravates the nationalisms that particularly at this time in history um, could... I mean, we've already seen um, atrocities in northern Syria. Sure, um, sure. The, if not by the Turkish army itself, then certainly by the, 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 the forces that they've, that they've sponsored. And... Um, I just really wish um, the uh, this had not happened right at this particular point. And I would also make make mention that the Armenian genocide resolution historically has not been supported in Armenia. Right. It's the diaspora that wants it. Armenia would really like to like hold that in abeyance and get a relationship with Turkey going and right. um, build trade relations right. and, the, and all of that. So, so it's, it's tricky. And I think, uh, you know, I, um, I respect what she says. She had a really interesting piece today in the Times. Um, you know, her, I thought her, her discussion of the millions, $12 million a year during the Obama administration they spent on lobbying, that's money that could have gone a lot more productive places. Right, right. So, so if I understand your position, David, you're, you're, you're saying that to go forward, what we should emphasize are the continued um, values and interests that are served, despite our significant differences on many issues, still interests that are served by a Turkish-American relationship. Absolutely. And that building that relationship will open space to address more of these issues, such as the legacy of the genocide, such as human rights violations today. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a good summary. Zachary, does that, does that sound like something that would interest young people who care about human rights and care about the region and are concerned about Kurds? What do you think? Yes, definitely. I, I think, you know, I think uh, my generation of Americans is very much uh, focused on these issues, particularly the different conflicts in, in the Middle East and how they relate to Turkey. And, and I also think that uh, the fact that there's so many Turkish, uh, there's so many Turkish immigrants in the United States and that's across right. the world plays a major role in how we view Turkey. 
That's right. That's right. I think one of the most profound points here is that uh, the history of Turkish democracy is intimately connected to the history of American democracy, and even more so uh, as we move into this tumultuous period that we're in now. And understanding that historical relationship can give us at least some motivation for building stronger relations, even as we try to uh, improve the behavior on both sides of that relationship. Yeah. Well said. Well, thank you, uh, David, and thank you, Zachary, for joining us for this week and for our understanding of democracy in America and in Turkey. This is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harrison Lemke, and you can find his music at harrisonlemke.com. Subscribe and stay tuned for a new episode every Thursday featuring new perspectives on democracy.